A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this uh, episode, which is uh, the next installment in the Great American Jewish History uh, cities, Great American City series of Jewish history soundbites uh, is about Muncie, the covering Muncie, and it has been generously sponsored in loving memory of Dr. Sidney and Shirley Levine, tirelessly, tirelessly serving the Muncie community for over 50 years, all the while setting an example in Limur HaToyra, Gemilas Chasadim, and Avas Yisrael to everyone who knew them from their grandchildren. So there will be, covering Muncie, so there will be eventually a part two, and who knows, maybe even a part three. So before you join the chorus of, uh, how did you not mention this, that, and the other thing, etc., remember that there's plenty of more coming. Uh, in part one, we'll just profile just a few aspects of, uh, of the Muncie personalities and institutions and development, especially since... The history in Muncie, which I'm going to get to soon, is it was so recent. It's really, really modern Jewish history. So it's less uh, chronological and more just uh, profiling specific aspects and uh, people. Um, in I know I grew up in Muncie to, to, before before I moved to Israel. So, uh, so I remember. You know, we always always a big question about Muncie was: it is it in town or out of town? When we go, we always thought it was in town. We're you know we're just up the, just up north from the city, and everyone in Muncie worked in the city. Took the Muncie Trails bus or whatever, or drove into across the George Washington Bridge or the Tappan Zee Bridge to get into Manhattan, and uh, you know and people went to Brooklyn and, and the city to eat, go out to eat and go for Shabbos and stuff. So we we considered ourselves pretty in town, but then we discovered. Went to you know you go up, up uh, to camp in upstate and all of a sudden we're exposed to the tough guy Brooklyn guys and they ask you I remember I remember this happened when I was a little kid uh, so where are you from Muncie oh oh so you live on a farm and uh, then we discover that we're really out of town because we're in a rural suburban area far away from New York City so in Orthodox suburbia is to be seen in the larger context of the suburban post-war trends, which is how the community develops uh, post-war. 
And in fact, it was old farmland. It was old farmland. It was considered upstate New York once upon a time. It was only Rockland County. It's still before Orange County and then uh, uh, Sullivan County, which is real upstate New York. But um, but uh, to a certain extent, it was across the river and, and, uh, and uh, you know, way out of the city. So before it was developed, it was very rural. It was actually farmland. Even in my own time in the 90s, growing up in Wesley Hills and Forche in the 1990s, it was still somewhat suburban. There was no traffic, no sidewalks in those neighborhoods, and there was plenty of parking all over town. Uh, so, you know, it's to all, all distinctive features of, of uh, suburbia. I remember out on, on Blauvelt uh, Road, there was brick, old brick buildings that, that the old timers said were actually part of a farm that used to be in that area. So it definitely was, uh, um, and that becomes a feature of, 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 of the development of Muncie and how it uh, becomes less and less suburban. And of course, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the identifying features of Muncie Jewish history is the zoning and rezoning of those areas as more and more Orthodox Jews move in. Um, when, when I posted on Twitter that there's going to be a Muncie episode, there was an insane amount of Twitter traffic. I don't think... There was anything close to that in the in the since I opened the account a few years ago. Um, so obviously this is a popular uh, you know all the different uh, people's places and things. So we're going to try to get to a significant amount of them, if not now, then in future installments. But um, we'll you know cover the more interesting ones. What's interesting about the history of Muncie is how recent and modern it is. Almost exclusively a post-war story. There is a little bit pre-war. And now it's one of the largest and most prominent Orthodox uh, Jewish communities in the United States. It was a little bit pre-war. There's an interesting right outside near Muncie, uh, Harvest Straw, uh, where there was a, a rabbi, one of the earliest shuls in Rockland County, um, sons of Jacob, I believe. So there was a rabbi, Rabbi Eli Melech Adlin, who during a landslide in 1906, he, he died. He passed away when he was in the middle of assisting in the rescue of others uh, from from the community, and that's the uh, you know he he was you know, European rabbi who had immigrated to the United States and became one of the first uh, com- congregational rabbis in Rockland County. Harvester was right outside of where Muncie's today, um, so that's an early early Muncie story. Now, in general, I'm talking about the the Jewish settlement in the Hudson River Valley and that whole general area, and specifically in Rockland County today. Jews, Jews are a third of the population in, in Rockland. Um, and they came up from the city, the Bronx, Yonkers in the 1930s, and more so in the post-war, and the general moved to the suburbs. In 1955, uh, New York State history changed with the opening of the Tappan Zee Bridge over the Hudson River, making it much easier to get there from the city. So that definitely helped in development. Um, so people who are leaving the city looking for bigger homes, looking for yards for their kids, big, huge, massive yards for their kids, and uh, good schools, they came up um, to those areas. Um, but for the record, Nyack, which is, again, another another place in the outskirts of Muncie, one of the first, first shul in Rockland County was in Nyack, the Sons of Israel in, 19, in 1891. Um, you know, the Jews were peddlers and, and uh, you know, small-time shopkeepers and merchants uh, during that time. And it's situated across the river from Westchester, 
where there was plenty of Jewish communities dotting the landscape in Westchester, who had also left the city, even have not far um, across the river in, in northern Westchester, you have near Pigskill, actually, is Mount Kisco, which is fascinating, the Nitra community, Mount Kisco, also a post-war phenomenon, which is not far from Bear Mountain, another uh, another uh, uh, Muncie, uh, 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 kind of a Muncie location, it's a part of growing up in Muncie, and of course West Point, uh, which is, you know, if you if you grew up in Muncie, then West Point has to be part of your itinerary on uh, on your Cholomite trips, um, but um, it's part of in general, that area, the Hudson River Valley, part of American history in general. You know, it's where um, Benedict Arnold and was supposed to meet Major Andre and to surrender West Point to the British. The Treason House is right outside Muncie, a historic place, a center of Revolutionary War history. In fact, there was a, there is a Revolutionary War cemetery smack in the center of Old Muncie. Right there, a tiny little place, but it's right there in the middle. It was across the street from actually from one of the great, uh, great uh, Torah leaders of Muncie lived, or Mordechai Schwab, who I'll get to. And um, in fact, he would himself go pick up the garbage that had been dropped there in the Revolutionary War Cemetery because he felt that it would be a chil Hashem, a desecration of God's name, if if it, right in the middle of a Jewish neighborhood and there was garbage left in the uh, revolution, such a historic uh, veterans revolutionary war cemetery. So he would clean it up. He himself would go down to Mordechai Schwab and clean up the garbage there, um, which is it's re- really right there, right, right next to Beis Shraga, the, the yeshiva in Mansi. So there's historical significance in the area. And if you, you know, looking over the, if you stand in West Point, you look over one of the players, remember, we used to go and we're looking one, one of the areas where those old cannons are, and you're overlooking the Hudson River, and it's absolutely gorgeous. The whole valley is open in front of you in the mountainous area, and it's it's beautiful. And you can almost see J.P. Morgan going with his yacht uh, up from his uh, city estate on Fifth Avenue, going up to where he he had his place in Westchester and and the Revolutionary War and, and all that. It's a, a center of American history as well. So as far as the Jews are concerned, it's definitely unique. Um, uh, most cities that we cover in this city, series of great American uh, Jewish cities are either areas in and around New York City, the neighborhoods and, and suburbs of New York City, or uh, other major United States or Canadian cities which developed a Jewish history over time as well. Here we have a suburb of New York. It's not a major city, and that somehow it evolved into a major Jewish and, and Orthodox uh, center. Muncie in the Orthodox context is not limited to the place called Muncie. It includes Kaiser Village, which is Visionist, smack in the middle of Muncie. It includes New Hempstead, Wesley Hills, Suffern, Spring Valley, Chestnut Ridge, today even New City and Airmont, Pomona, who knows? Maybe one day even Nanuet will be considered part of Muncie as well. A few other towns and villages in the area. So everything in Muncie is all about zoning and getting the zoning, and each village has their own zoning. It's officially the town of Ramapo, not even Muncie. Muncie's not incorporated. We'll get to that also. There was a prominent non-Orthodox Jewish history in the area, conservative, reform, and unaffiliated, very prominent in and around Rockland County. It was a Reuben Gittleman school, Solomon Schechter school. There was a Camp Ramah, one of the most prominent Camp Ramahs in the country was in the area. Very large Jewish population in general, non-Orthodox or even unaffiliated, but oftentimes very developed institutionally. 
uh, as are many of the towns on both sides of the river in the counties uh, leading north from the city. But when we talk about the Orthodox development in Muncie, the reason that it happened and the way it developed is due to one person and his vision, and that is, like many other things in, in, the, in the Torah history of the United States of America in general, that's Rav Shraga Mendelovich and his building of Beis Medrash Elyon, and that lays the real foundations of Torah Jews in Muncie without a doubt, without a question. He brings in the great uh, leaders of uh, Torah leaders to become the heads of Beis Medrash Elyon, Ruben Grzovsky, and Rav Chaim Kaplan, the son-in-law of the, of the Mir Meshkiach, Rabbi Yochum Lubavitz, he brings it to the Meshkiach and Base Medrash Elyon, and Roshaga Fivel Mendelovich's influence is seen beyond just Base Medrash Elyon, although that was his main contribution. He did many other things as well, some of which I'll get to. He, he, um, his son-in-law, Rabbi Dov Greenbaum, started Yeshiva of Spring Valley, which was, which also I'll get to. The, the first day schools, the, the first day school in Muncie, um, and uh, you know, even some of the stores in Muncie, Mendelowitz's, uh, supermarkets and butchers and stuff, are started by members of his family. And of course, Beis Shraga, the main yeshiva in Muncie till today, is uh, is named for Reb Shraga Feivel as well. And his family remained very influential even after his passing, which was not long after he pioneered uh, the Muncie Jewish life. Um, uh, in those days, it was a little more in, in Spring Valley. It was young Israel there in the early years, actually, that I believe still exists. Um, but it developed into Muncie uh, pretty pretty early on. One of the things that I remember uh, most about, uh, about, about Muncie was another historical landmark, which is not related to the Jewish community, was the, but it was, again, a, a feature of American history, is the drive-in theater, um, which, uh, which is drive-in theater was a major... Uh, uh, a part of American history that thought it had a lot of potentials in the nineteen potential, excuse me, in the nineteen fifties with the big American cars that were being developed at the time, people coming in to drive in and watch movies in an outdoor theater. Which is the reason I thought of it is because there was a re, kind of a resurgence of the idea of a drive-in last year during Corona. There was drive-in rallies and drive-in concerts and drive-in entertainment, um, so, but that was the the. The abandoned lot of the drive-in theater, we would see it when we would drive uh, to the Atrium Plaza next door or more often to get Chinese food next door in one of the stores. Real piece of American small town uh, history. One of the early, um, like I said, Spring Valley, in the early development, one of the early people and families who were involved there were the Soloveitchiks of Muncie. So the Muncie had their own Soloveitchiks as well. Uh, um, especially Rebetz and Shoshana Soloveitchik and girls' uh, education, girls' school, Beis Yaakov, but uh, also her husband. Um, it goes back a few generations. The Beis Halevi, the original patriarch of the Soloveitchik uh, dynasty, rabbinical dynasty, the way it really started even earlier than the Beis Halevi. He's the first famous one. So he, he had um, three wives. His first one got divorced. The second one, where most of his children are from, um, such as his famous one, Reb Chaim uh, Brisker. Um, but his, he had a third marriage also after his second wife's passing. He had a son and a daughter from his third marriage. And the youngest son was Reb Simcha Soloveitchik, who was a Rav in Moyolov, uh, which is a town in, in Belarus, uh, east of Minsk. Uh, later, he immigrated to the United States, and he was a rabbi in, in New York, in the city. And he passed away in 1941 and is buried in the Mount Judah Cemetery. And he had a son named... A very prominent uh, Soloveitchik family name, Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, named after his grandfather. So you have 
many Rabbi Yosef Dov Soloveitchiks, but this is the one in Muncie. And he was a rabbi in Spring Valley, in one of the first shuls in the area. And his wife, Rabbi Shoshana Soloveitchik, was an aristocratic woman. Um, and she was the longtime legendary principal and educator in the Beis Yaakov in Spring Valley, Muncie. Um, she passed away at the age of 90 in the year 2000. Very influential and a big impact on generations of girls' education, a pioneer, essentially, of, of, uh, of Beis Yaakov education in the area. Their son, by the way, is Rabbi Yitzhak Soloveitchik, who was a prominent uh, Rosh Yeshiva in Yerushalayim. So you have uh, Rabbi Shraga Feivel and his influence. Um, he starts based Medrash Ali, and he also had other programs. He had the Aish Das Educators Program, which was in the early days of Torah Masaira. Um, Rabbi Simcha Wasserman, the son of Rabbi Hanan, actually was there for a time. Um, and um, and uh, and like I said, uh, even before Base Medrash Elyon opens, already Yeshiva of Spring Valley, started by the son-in-law of Rabbi Shraga Feivel, uh, opens in 1943. It was the first day school in the area, one of the first in the country, actually. In 1943, Shishim Valley started in the basement of Rabbi Soloveitchik's synagogue, who I just mentioned, with just a few students. Uh, until then, everyone had gone to public school, and they had to canvass the, the locals to, to send their children to the day school. Um, the school spent, so they start in Rabbi Soloveitchik's shul, and then they spent a year in Beis Medrash Elyon, and then they rented space in in a chicken factory, in a local chicken factory, and then and then uh, until eventually they were able to uh, buy a piece of property in the corner of Main Street and Maple Avenue, which it was for many many decades. It was when uh, when uh, when uh, when I was there. There were not uh, many families in the area who cared about Jewish education, so um, there was a fellow named uh, Harry Halberg, who was the son of Bracha Halberg, who sold the base Medrash Elyon estate to Reb Shraga Feivel Mendelovich. So he would go door to door asking Jewish families to please send their children to the school. Um, and he, he, was, he, 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 would, he would convince them that they would get a general education as well. Uh, unbelievable, just to get, get things started in those early days. Um, and many of the early Rebbeim of, uh, of, of Yeshua Sri Valley came from the alumni of Beis Medrash Alien, students of Rabbi Shraga Feivel, one of the most prominent ones, legendary, historical ones, uh, who became one of the most famous people in Muncie, was Herschel Mashinsky, who I had the privilege of knowing, actually, in his later years, and he was a Rebbe in the Yeshiva Sri Valley for well over a half a century, a student of Rabbi Shraga Feivel, who would speak about him, and it was the first time I ever heard someone speak about him, in, as someone who knew him, um, and he... Uh, he had gone to the H. Dus Educators Program that Rishraga Feivel had started there, and then he went to become on a prominent educator and stayed there for the rest of his life. Um, so he, uh, um, and then Reb Dave Greenbaum is the principal. So he, he Reb Dave Greenbaum used to open the telephone book and dial the number of any family whose name sounded Jewish, and then try to convince them to join the school, and he would it would even offer them tuition breaks, and that's how Yeshiva Spring Valley. Is is built, and of course another historical uh, um, event there took place when when the future podcaster of, of Jewish history soundbites spent uh, a decade there in the 1990s. But um, um, Beis Shraga eventually was started by members of Rosh Shraga Feivel's families. It became a prominent yeshiva there. Rosh Yeshif, Rosh Shraga Feivel's another son-in-law, um, a few of his own children and grandchildren, Mendelowitzes, um, in the same. Area there was another historic shul, the Beis Yisrael Shul, who's the rabbi there, who was a, a uh, 
I, I believe a Holocaust survivor, Nassim Horowitz, who um, who was the one of the old, elder Poiskim of of uh, of Muncie for many years. I used the daven there at the eight o'clock minion on Sunday morning, and they would give out lechayims then after davening. So they I remember the old shul there had this old oak wood smell, which made you feel feel like you were in a shtetl. And it was right across the street from Base Medrashelian and she was from Valley, right down the block from Base Shraga. This is the center of Old Muncie. So um, we get back to Base Medrashelian and how that began. And I have to thank my good friend, uh, Srili Besser, for sharing a bunch of stories with me and and then articles that he's written about Base Medrashelian and the Old Muncie of those times and and allows me to uh, encourage me to quote from and cite uh, what he's written on the on the topic, so thank you, uh, Srili. Now the 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 base Medjelian didn't just build a yeshiva; they built um, the or- original bungalows, kind of like little houses for the first Kolel residences in U.S. history. These were the first Kolel families who had their own homes, which uh, which was part of Shraga Fivel's vision. He had been the principal in Taravadas for many years, and he believed that the Taravadas out in Williamsburg would provide Shomer Shabbos. Uh, Balabatim, layman. And he decided at some point that it's time to move it to the next level, a real yeshiva which would provide rabbis, Russia yeshiva, paiskim, big tommy the chacham, and he chose Muncie. He wanted it to be out of town, and he bought the estate. He brought Rabruvin Grzovsky, the son of Rabarchbar, the Rashiva Kamenetz, to become the Rashiva based on Ishalian. He brought Rabisrael Chaim Kaplan, the son of Rabirchim Levavitz, to be the Mashgiach. He brought his own product, Rabgedalia Shor, from Tarvidas, to become one of the heads of the yeshiva as well. And then 40 American students from Brooklyn and the Lower East Side to create the, the basis of what would become the, the, uh, the premier yeshiva of America at that time. One of the early members of the Kolo was a fellow by the name of Rablazer Lauer. He and other members would sometimes donate some of their meager Kolo checks back to Base Medish Alianas, which was a cash-strapped institution at the time going through difficult financial straits. And when Blazer Lauer would donate it, he would, it would always be a random number. And we, he was asked why he gave such funny uh, numbers. Why couldn't he round it up or down? He said he would, he would calculate the minutes he wasted that month and return the equivalent amount uh, that he felt that he owed back to the yeshiva. And some of the alumni of Beis Medrash Elian during those early years was Rav Simcha Shostel, who went on to become the head of the Kolo in Beis Medrash Elian, and his two sons, uh, prominent Rashi yeshiva today, um, studied there as well. Uh, Rav Dunn and Garisher was the son-in-law of Rabbi Grzovsky and, and, and later became the Rashiva Meisvanesh Elian. Um, Rabbi David Steinwurzel, Rabbi Matul Weinberg, Rabbi Yaakov Meishkalevsky, Rabbi Herschel Mashinsky, who I mentioned before, Rabbi Shmelka Taubenfeld, who was a Galicia, Bell's Chassid, and Holocaust survivor, who became a close student of Rabbi Ruven Grzovsky. So it's really bringing different worlds together as well. Of course, Rabbi Hirsch Goldworm, Nassim Sherman from Art Scroll, Bishrael Belsky, the late Rashiva Tervadas, and, uh, and, and more and more, Professor Aaron Tversky, uh, the Munkach Rebbe, the current Munkach Rebbe. And the idea was to create a senior yeshiva like Taravadas, but more serious and older and higher level, no general studies, uh, etc. But that with the combination that Rabshraga Fievel felt was an ideal in Taravadas, which was a combining the Lithuanian Torah style, uh, Torah study, style of Torah study, with, with, together with the warmth of, of Hasidus. And it flourished in the 1950s and 60s. Unfortunately, it closed in the 1970s, but then it reopened a few years later by Arubin's son-in-law, Dunn Garisher, and his son later opened a branch of Base Medish Elian in B'nai Brak. Um, 
The yeshiva custodian for many years was a fellow named Johnson. Rabbi Yisrael Chaim Kaplan, who was the mashgiach, was still immersed in the world of Mir, which he came from, and he saw some students huddling and talking once on a fine November day in 1963. So he asked what happened. So they said, Kennedy was shot. So he said, oh, who's going to be the president now? So they said, Johnson. So he said, amazing, I just saw him 10 minutes ago. And he couldn't believe it. So that's... Uh, that's a, a, a base Manishalian story. This is Shmuel Shmelka Taubenfeld that I mentioned earlier. He eventually headed his own shul in the area for many years, which continues till today in Muncie, Beis Medrash Charedim, uh, um, and, and, and other uh, uh, um, um, uh, local institutions that grew out of, of Beis Medrash Elian as well. Um, Rupert Shemoshinsky, who I mentioned, also started one of the early tzedakah organizations, Kupa Sezra. Um, one of the most important features that's important to understand about Muncie is there's up the hill and down the hill. Until today, I'm not really sure where it starts and ends, the up the hill and down the hill. And since there's 5,000 hills in Muncie, why specifically that hill? But um, but down the hill emerged from Spring Valley, which started earlier, and then up the hill was the was the, developed later on. Um, so now on a now that we have the distinction of of base Medrash Elian and other institutions, and we know that there's the up the hill and down the hill. Now I'm going to uh, profile and another few for a few minutes of some other uh, famous uh, uh, Muncie personalities and other institutions. One of them, unforgettable, was a fellow by the name of Ronnie Greenwald, and also his brother actually lived there as well. Dr. Yaakov Greenwald who was one of the early religious psychologists in the area. But Ronnie Greenwald, who was who came to you know, he's he's really a fascinating story in his own right, and not just limited to his Muncie activities, but he lived there from early on in in Muncie. And um, and his he redefined what askanas is, what activism is, education, initiative, leadership, um, and uh, he was very active in Soviet Jewry, involved in the release of Nathan Sharansky and Anatoly Sharansky back in the 1980s. Um, he negotiated the release of Jewish prisoners around the world. That became one of his uh, main projects in some very harrowing situations and in dangerous countries. Suffice to say that he's a story of his own. But in the Muncie context, he was responsible for the building and sustaining of many of the local institutions, including pioneering endeavors in girls' education, uh, handicapped, special needs, uh, kids at risk, whatever that means. And as that term came to be developed and take on new meanings, um, abuse victims, he was a pioneer in that respect as well. And of course, uh, with the long time, uh, he was very close with the beloved uh, representative in, in the House, the congressman for what everyone in Muncie um, loved for many years, Ben Gilman, who was the son of Austrian Jewish immigrants who served the district in the House for three decades. Um, so what an interesting aspect of Ronnie Greenwald's activism is relevant to my trips to Europe. One of his rescue missions, which brought him to Lithuania, for, which ostensibly was for another uh, Jew held in captivity, he discovered books and Sifrei Torah in tatters in a basement of a monastery in Vilna. And the first book he opened belonged to Rebellia Meir Bloch, who was his Rebbe in Tells. Uh, so he rescued them and sent them to shuls around the world following restoration, and others he buried in a plot right near the Vilna Gain in the Vilna Jewish Cemetery. One of the most prominent individuals who graced his presence in Muncie for many years was Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. And he sort of retired at the, in his old age. He left Taravidas, um, but he didn't really retire because he became even more active when he moved to Muncie. He moves there from Williamsburg and is ready. He's 
quite old and is already the 19 late 60s early 70s and he moves out of Williamsburg to Muncie one of the greatest Torah leaders to have ever resided in the town um, see he he acclimates himself to Muncie areas I remember reading a story about how um, it was Halloween night and uh, and, and and locals you know it was mostly non-jews in the area had come to trick-or-treat and one of the people in Rebecca's house was going to explain to him what trick-or-treating is and, and you know, what Halloween is so he should he should know how to how to react and how to respond and then he and Rebecca said oh Halloween uh, I'm all prepared he knew all about it and he and his wife had had Pekalach all uh, prepared uh, to give out to the trick or treaters, uh, <laughs> have them ones who would be anticipated them coming. Um, all the local rabbis and lay people sought out his advice. He oversaw the opening of several of of Muncie schools and yeshivas and institutions. Till today, the flourishing of Torah institutions of all kinds, and many of them are hit to his direct credit. And he oversaw their opening and initial stages. I actually just heard another story just a week ago from someone who who was accompanying Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky when he was walking out, and he was already older, and he was leaning on him. He, was, he had to. It's difficult for him to walk, and he said, where, where are you going? And he said, I'm going to pay my electric bill and, and his gas bill, whatever, his, his utilities. So he said, I'll go pay them for you. You can stay home. So he said, what do you mean? It's a mitzvah to go pay a debt. So I'm going to pay my bills. It's a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah. I want to do it myself. And he lived out on Saddle River Road, which eventually his house came, became the Gerish Stiebel. Um, I remember the Pnei Menachem, or Pinchas Menachem, Alter the Ger Rebbe, his Levaya was at the, they had a hookup, I'm sorry, not, not his Levaya was, it was in Yerushalayim, but they had a live hookup to his, his funeral, which I remember uh, for, also from growing up in 1996. Uh, people would come to Rabbi Yaakov's house from all over seeking his sage advice, and later, in his later months and years, he lived up to his reputation as he was known as Chakim Adi the wise man of the Jewish people. I remember Rabbi Wine telling me, uh, saying how he guided him against uh, many detractors of his when he opened his school, Shari uh, Torah, and then he, and he opened his shul, base Torah. He had general studies in this school, and, and he had a smicha program in the school, and he had all kinds of people who were upset, and, and it was part of the up-the-hill, down-the-hill politics of those days, and Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky backed him up and helped him uh, open uh, the institutions, the Torah institutions that he did. Um, and such was with, with many institu- uh, Muncie uh, institutions of that time. Another prominent individual who lived there at the time was Reb Mordechai Schwab. Reb Mordechai Schwab was the younger brother of Shimon Schwab, the older brother of Reb Moshe Schwab, who was the Mashkiach and Gate said. So he had uh, came from, come from Frankfurt and studied uh, for three years in the Mir Yeshiva in Poland and later seven years in the Kamenitz, a, student, a close student of Reb Baruch Ber. Um, I actually remember him in Muncie. I met him several times. As a young child, I even held the door open for him when he arrived at some event, and that was my first... Uh, uh, my first first-hand experience with someone who was like like a you know a big tzaddik or whatever, so that left an impression on me personally as well. And he was the mashgiach at Beis Shragi. He was a very sweet and modest, a beautiful smile, sense of humor, and yet he was also a very serious balmuser. In fact, I heard a story from uh, someone, someone related a story to me that he um, he his father had uh, this fellow who told me the story. His father. Had uh, had uh, his um, relative of mine has uh, had had sent had attempted to send her Mordechai Schwab. He knew him from Frankfurt. He knew the family from Frankfurt. He was a yucky, already settled down in New York City, running away from Hitler and the Nazi regime in the 1930s. And he attempted to assist her Mordechai Schwab when he was stuck in Japan to get him a visa to the United States. 
His visa did not work out, it didn't materialize, and Rabbi Cheshwab ended up in Shanghai with the Mir Yeshiva. But he attempted to save him. So many, many years later, when they were living in Muncie, so he once brought his daughter to Shul and Aishana Rabbah to the Shul where Mordechai Schwab davened, and his daughter wanted to receive a blessing after davening on Aishana Rabbah from Mordechai Schwab. So he asked Mordechai Schwab if he could come over to the uh, ladies' section, to the edge there, and he said, Can you give my daughter a blessing? So he said, Of course. It's to the granddaughter of the one who tried to save my life and send me a visa. So how can I refuse? This is just the minimum, the gratitude that I can extend. And a year later, the next daughter wanted a blessing from Mordechai Schwabshir. Her older sister got it also. So the next year, Neshan Rabbah, he brought the next daughter and he went over to him again. And he said, my next daughter wants a blessing. So he said, of course, the the granddaughter of the one who, or great-granddaughter, whatever it was, uh, who had attempted to save my life, uh, that's the uh, minimal gratitude I can give is to uh, you know, graciously give a blessing. So that's, uh, that was the extent of his, his gratitude. Um, so he, he um, escaped, like I said, to Japan and Shanghai, where he was again affiliated with the Mir. And upon arrival in the United States, he actually worked as a bookkeeper in the wine business, and he struggled to support his family. He then became a second-grade Rebbe in Williamsburg before he got a teaching position, a similar teaching position, in a early Muncie cheder of Rafal Eisenberg. And he was soon appointed to the ninth-grade position as a Rebbe in Beis Shraga, uh, which later de- evolved into a full-time uh, mashkiach position. His davening was legendary. It would take a long time with intense recital and concentration, he would sometimes actually have a cup of coffee before he would recite the bedtime Shema, if he felt that he did not have enough uh, focus and concentration, because uh, he was tired, so he would have a cup of coffee so he can recite the Shema properly. Uh, he was also, one time, another story was I saw, was he was upset when the handyman who came to fix his house in Muncie was paid in cash, because then he was not able to pay the sales tax, and he was also concerned that he would the handyman would not report his income tax. He felt it was dishonest. Um, like I said, he would pick up the garbage in the Revolutionary War Cemetery across the street from his house. When he left the hospital shortly before his passing, he sent a box of candy to all the nursing staff to show his express his appreciation. To a certain extent, he was seen as the successor to Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky as the senior rabbinical figure in Muncie. He convinced many Muncie schools to add the study of the Sefer Chafetz Chaim and Shemir Salashim to their curriculum, and he later considered that the greatest accomplishment of his life. So it's a pretty incredible uh, accomplishment. One of the suburbs of Muncie, one of the nearby towns as part of Muncie history, is the town of New Square. When the Skiver Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef Tversky, wanted to leave Williamsburg, uh, New York City, and to get out in 1954, they, they bought this piece of property and then eventually started to become populated in 1956. They incorporated as a village in 1960. They even had their own mayor. A fellow by the name of Matis Freisel became the mayor in 1961, and he ran unopposed in every election until his passing in 2015. So he has the distinction of being one of the longest-serving mayors in the history of the United States. So the idea of starting this little shtetl, um, really, you know, to talk about Skver and the dynasty and New Square and the town and the Skver Rebbe, the previous Skver Rebbe, and the, it's, it's an, I think it's a nice piece of history on its own, but it also has its uh, relation to Muncie and many of 
the overflow. Many, many uh, members have eventually moved into Muncie itself, so it's definitely a part of history, especially we would walk, uh, when I was a kid growing up, we would walk uh, over the, over an hour on Simchas Torah night to participate in the Hakafis of, uh, of uh, New Square. So that was something that uh, you know, was part of it. And I remember we went to the Simchas Beis HaSheiv on Cholomite Sukkis, and we would see this young teenager, uh, Skivera Chassid, named Lipa Schmelzer, singing at the Simchas Beis HaSheiv before he was famous. So it definitely has a, a Muncie a history there as well. In fact, the Dayan of New Square, Moshe Neuschlis, who was ostensibly the Dayan of New Square, uh, he was the respected senior Paisik for Muncie and many Muncie rabbis for decades. He was an Oberlander, a Hungarian Jew, survived the Holocaust and, and later built up uh, a following in New Square in Muncie. Right, speaking of the Hasidic presence in Muncie, we come to Vizhnitz, um, or Mordechai, or Matala, Hagar. Um, we have to do a Vizhnitz episode about the dynasty one day, uh, but specifically in regards to uh, to uh, Vizhnitz in Muncie. So, um, the Rebbe, after escaping the Holocaust with his family, his father, the Mechaim of Vizhnitz, and his brother, the future Vizhnitz Rebbe, in Bnei Brak, they lived before the war, of course, in Grosvardian, and they cross, uh, they escape across the Romanian border to Bucharest, and then they return. He returns to Grosvardian after the war, where he teaches Torah to young refugees, but he soon goes ahead and marries the daughter of the Skver Rebbe, Rabbi Akivese in Bucharest, in the capital. And she passed away shortly afterwards, and he remarries, and excuse me, and he marries her sister. So he moves to the United States following his father-in-law, not his father, to Israel. And he settles in Barra Park and later in Williamsburg, and he establishes a Vizhnitz Stiebel. Um, and aside from his father-in-law, he's also close with the Satmarov, who influenced his uh, views on many uh, issues of the day. And in 1964, eager to get out of the city and following the model of his father-in-law, who had a decade earlier established New Square, he moves to Muncie, right nearby, and establishes a community of Vizhnitz. Um So this is while his father is still alive. He's not a, he's not yet the Vizhnitz Rebbe. The Yemrechaim is still alive in Bnei Brak at this time. Um, this is a community, a kahila. Um, so it's very interesting. Uh, later, he established a yeshiva and a small community in Kiamisha Lake in upstate New York. But he incorporated his own village in Muncie in the 1990s, Kaiser Village, Crown, Kesser. Um, and and, and this village, which is completely surrounded by Muncie, has the distinction of having the highest Romanian ancestry of any town in the United States. Uh, You know, of course, there was the local Stiblach. We always daven there in the Vision Space Medrash growing up. Um, And uh, it was only incorporated for zoning purposes, that village, because it was really part of Muncie, uh, to be able to have multifamily dwellings and stuff and so on. So uh, that was my first exposure to Hasidus and a Tish and a Rebbe growing up was the Vizhnitz uh, Muncie Rebbe. He himself would go below the Shaifer by his father, the Imre Chaim of Vizhnitz and Bnei Brak, and following his passing in 1972, he officially became the Vizhnitz Muncie Rebbe. Uh, later he took in his nephew, who's the current Vizhnitz Rebbe in Bnei Brak, Rabbi Srulcha, when he was banished from his father's home, and that was a lot of Vizhnitz politics in those days, so he lived in Muncie for close to 20 years in the 80s and 90s, and lots of tension between the two courts of Bnei Brak and Muncie, and eventually it was uh, resolved. Uh, also, Ramatullah, the Vizhnitz Muncie Rebbe, was considered more of a Kanoi, but of an extremist, while in Israel, the Vizhnitz is part of the Agudis Yisrael. But ultimately, they made peace, and the Vizhnitz Rebbe is buried in uh, Muncie. In fact, the Toldasaran Rebbe, the current Toldasaran Rebbe, lived in uh, Muncie for a period of time as well. Um, one of the most important early institutions in Muncie was Rabbi Shadavid Tendler and the community synagogue. 
uh, Up the Hill. The Up the Hill community started with that in the late 1950s. Um, and Rabbi Tendler already lived in Muncie at the time, and they asked him to become the rabbi. And I uh, heard from one of his grandchildren that uh, he didn't want to become the rabbi. He had a position in Shiva University. He was close with his father-in-law, Ramesha. He was busy. He didn't want to take on to be the rabbi in the community synagogue. And Ramesha, his father-in-law, told him, you know, you're anyways going to live there, and you're anyways going to have to daven in the shul, because you need a shul to daven in. So it's always going to be awkward if you're the one who refused to be the rabbi, but you're still daven in the shul. So you might as well become the rabbi. So based on that advice, um, he became the rabbi in the community synagogue and built it up to the massive community that it is today. So one of the prominent builders of the Muncie Orthodox Jewish community was definitely the role that Rabbi Tendler and later his son, Nuemstead, uh, played in the community synagogue. You know, from the Muncie Orthodox community, from several hundred families in the 1960s, eventually grows into several thousand overall, the whole, whole, whole Muncie, not just in the community synagogue, over several decades. Of course, uh, Sharei Torah and Beis Torah, Rabbi Wine, um, which, uh, which hopefully I'll get to more in, in uh, part two. I want to end off with a fascinating story that I saw in, uh, in one of Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan's books, an article that he wrote about writing the first get in Muncie. Now, Rabbi Aryeh Kaplan, who is not a Muncie personality, he lived in Brooklyn and other places also throughout his, his, his uh, unfortunately short but fascinating life. He's, a, he's an amazing personality himself, but one of his less well-known essays that he wrote was about the first get written in Muncie, and he goes into incredible detail uh, of the process. I found it very interesting. He published the article in the Jewish Observer in December 1976, and he heard the story from Rebleib Landsman, who was a prominent early Muncie rabbi, and the Kolel Rabbanim, and 19, was a, a, an important uh, uh, um, um, Torah institution in Muncie uh, during that time. In 1973, this Kolel Rabbanim decided it's high time to establish the writing of a get in Muncie, instead of going in to New York City each time that a get needs to be written. They approached Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was living in Muncie then, and advised them, who advised them that it's time to put Muncie on the Gitten map as well. And they then presented the whole case to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, who signed off on it, essentially. They had to establish the correct spelling of Muncie, the body of water as an identifying mark, the precise boundaries of Muncie. You know, Muncie is unincorporated, so it's tricky, tri- excuse me, it's tricky to establish the boundaries. Rabiaku advised them using a census map and a postal map, so, and, and then they had to go on to the spelling. So Muncie was named for the Muncie Native American tribe who inhabited the area. And, uh, and it also, the name actually first appeared on a local train station, which put, you know, Muncie on the map for real. So the question was how to spell it in Hebrew. Uh, that was one issue they had to deal with. And then the closest thing to a water source was Lake Suzanne. Uh, I guess the Willow Tree Duck Pond in my neighborhood in Wesley Hills didn't qualify. But um, Ramesha was consulted, and they decided to call it Nahar Lake Suzanne, the Lake Suzanne River, and then the Water of Wells, which was the water source for the town. So Ramesha wrote out this exact in his own handwriting to finalize the official language of any future get to be written in Muncie. And then they had to get approval from other rabbis. That was the next hurdle. Many hesitated. Or Chatzkel Roth, the Satmerdayan, was the first one to jump aboard, though he had an issue with referring to Muncie as a Masa, as a city. So apparently when, when you're a Paisic who's living in Brooklyn, it's hard to see Muncie as a city, but ultimately he decided that for suburbia it sufficed that it was a city. And Ramesha Stern, the Debrezina Rav, signed off on it, and Ramesha Neishlis, of course, of New Square, and Ramesha Horowitz, who I mentioned earlier, the senior Muncie Rav, um, who spoke at my bar mitzvah, actually, um, was, uh, he uh, agreed to it as well. And then the first get was written in Muncie on October 29th, uh, 1975. 
So that became a piece of Munzee history. Of course, one of the early shuls was of Shlomo Breslauer and based Fila, which was the original Yaki shul of Munzee. It was a tremendous Paisik. But later on, KJ, Kaldas Shurin of Washington Heights, attempted to open, it did not really work out that well, but it was some sort of attempted to open a, a branch. Eventually, Raftali Friedler was a rabbi there of the community when everyone was leaving the small and crowded uh, community of Washington Heights. Not everyone, but many were leaving the small and crowded community of Washington Heights in the 1970s. Um, you know, uh, you know, Muncie's kind of close to Washington Heights area, right across by the George Washington Bridge and up into New York State. So that's we'll hold it there for now. Um, we'll keep the rest for part two and maybe part three, and uh, and be in touch with me for sponsorships about that if you're interested. Uh, in getting different aspects of Muncie history covered. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.